Hello and welcome to Truer Love Stories, a podcast dedicated to real people wanting to create real love. I'm your host, Taryn Newton-Gill. In each episode, we'll explore the stories of people who are at a crossroads in their love life. I'll help our guests navigate their personal love story by providing them with holistic ways of writing a new, more empowered narrative around love, one that's truly aligned with who they are and what they want. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Truer Love Stories. I'm so grateful to have you here joining us. And I'm honestly really excited for you that you found us because it means you're in a place in your life where you're ready to go deeper into yourself and into your relationships to illuminate the shadows that have been keeping you stuck in relationships that don't reflect your highest self and that you're ready to replace them with relationships that do reflect your highest self. Relationships that honor and support you and help you step out into the world as your bright, beautiful, deserving self. So I just want to acknowledge that and the fact that you are taking the time to show up and listen to this today because listening to podcasts like this was how I crawled out of my own hole. So I know intimately the power of relating to and learning from other people's stories which of course is why I'm doing it now myself and why I'm so passionate about it. And we have such a treat for you today. Uh, I'm obsessed with this episode. Our guest is just so raw and earnest in her desire to heal herself. And I honestly just wanted to give her a big fat hug our entire discussion. I just wanted to hold her and just you know, make her feel okay about life because she is on her way and she is great and she's just so sweet and wonderful. And we touch on some really key topics. The main one being, how do we develop the confidence and the trust in ourselves to set necessary boundaries in relationships? And why do we even need or want to set boundaries in relationships? Like, what's the point You know, aren't boundaries a bad thing that keep people out instead of allowing them to get close to us? I hear this a lot. And the answer is no. Boundaries sounds like a harsh phrase, but it's actually not what they are and not their purpose. They actually serve a very important and specific function in helping us create intimacy with someone and ultimately to help us fall in love with them and have them fall in love with us. So if you've ever struggled setting boundaries in the past or are of the camp that when you love someone, you should just give all of yourself to them completely, well, let's just say that we're going to flip that notion on its head and dare I say, blow your mind today. Um, I know I'm putting a lot of expectations out there for this episode, but um, I think I think we're going to deliver on it, so I feel good about it. I think you're going to come away from this episode feeling empowered and inspired to start setting and also honoring, because they're two different things, setting and honoring your own boundaries, as our guest was after this conversation. I think she just seemed ready, and so 
I really look forward to that for you. And if you do start noticing differences after listening to this episode, I would be so curious to hear about them. Seriously, like, please get in touch with me. Let me know how this episode has affected you. I love to hear that stuff. Ask me your questions. As you can tell, I love conversation. So please do not hesitate to reach out. I'm around. Um, But in the meantime, let's hear our amazing guest's story. So when you approached me, you told me a little bit about yourself and your history. And you mentioned that you've been single now for about four years. And you've been celibate for three based off some very intentional choices you decided to make for yourself after coming off of some toxic relationships and some really toxic patterns that you noticed about yourself. And after having felt pretty emotionally abused in a lot of different relationships. So I know you mentioned that trust was a big deal for you. And you did say it's trust of the other person, but it sounds like it was also trust of yourself. Is that right? Oh, that's that's spot on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. It's amazing. We we think of the word trust, I think, a lot in relation to other people. You know, if we can trust someone with our secrets or our loyalty or something like that. But trust with ourselves is huge. Right. And, and I don't know if it's really talked about as much. So I think it's a really interesting subject to delve into. Um, so do you want to expand for me a little bit about what it shows up as for you in these relationships? So in my past relationship experiences, I have been in places where I thought or I considered myself at the time to be doing, quote unquote, all the right things and then not still not getting the results that I wanted out of it. And so through that, and and I did mention to you before, I dealt with manipulation a little bit, you know, some toxic patterns. And so those things combined kind of led me to not trust my own discernment as far as how to choose somebody that's right for me and when to know how to set a boundary or when I'm just being hyperactive, you know, and and hypervigilant and protecting myself, um, so yes, as far as trusting myself in a relationship or in a romantic space, I think the problem stems from not receiving the treatment that I thought or I felt that I was worthy of at the time. So in the past, I allowed the treatment that I received from my romantic partners to dictate my worth, to mean something about what I was worthy of receiving. Um, and then so... In regards to the idea of trusting myself, um, yeah, the fuzzy or the gray areas around my worth, um, I basically, I internalized my partner's actions. So mm-hmm. if they didn't respond to me in the way that I would have expected them to or wanted them to or, or really needed them to um, at the time, then I internalized that to mean I wasn't worthy of receiving the treatment that I really wanted. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you combine that to toxic relationship patterns, you know, manipulation and, and things of the sort, it leads one to not trust my discernment and not trust that I know how to protect myself, to trust myself to know what's 
acceptable in a situation and what I, I what I should not accept. Yeah. Would, and would you say there's a bit of self-blame in there in that process? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, Cause it's, I mean, it's hard not to, you know, relationships are so personal. It's just two people. And so I chose them, they chose me. And so I think at that point, it's only two people to blame. So I felt shame for not seeing signs earlier on, right? So not for not knowing things that I couldn't have known because I was so young, but it still feels really bad, I think, to not know how to properly care for and protect yourself in mm-hmm. a situation when you really need to. Yeah, absolutely. And really beautifully said too. So yeah, a lot of what you're saying does indicate to me that a lot of those feelings of self-worth or low self-worth and really just blaming yourself and not trusting yourself in these situations, I think it's a combination of things. First of all, when people treat us a certain way enough times and when those relationships are intimate enough that we care about them, that has an impact, of course, on our programming, our psyche and our feelings about ourselves. Um, and that's true for anyone of any attachment style or orientation, you know, that's just the way humans are. But on top of that, a lot of the things you're telling me show me strong signs of anxiously attached people. So again, attachment is a spectrum. So it's not like I'm diagnosing you with anxious (laughs) attachment, but it does mean that you're more likely to turn to what we call activating strategies to stay close. And it means that anxiously attached people tend to have been taught to put other people's needs first a lot, to care a lot about what other people think. Sometimes they're thought of as people pleasers, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is, again, I say this a lot, but it's also our superpower to be so in tune with other people. Obviously, you know, there are many anxiously attached men, but women being nurturers and and being connectors uh, naturally, it's like all these layers of it that make it very much so someone like you and someone like me, because I also identify as an anxiously attached person, is why we can be so sensitive and why what people say matters to us. You know, we don't take what someone who's an intimate partner does or says to us lately. It's much harder for us to shake it off because there's this little piece of validation in that. Um, and, And just being a woman in the world too, we're also taught to be validated by men. You know, we're raised that romantic love is the ideal um, in a different way than men are. We are taught to feel more complete by it. So all of these factors are present in your interactions, whether consciously or subconsciously with your past relationships, right? And I like to say all that because for me, learning about attachment theory was this like sigh of relief because it explained to me and all of these other factors, you know, but at its core, this biological piece of programming, of social programming that we have in us, because it is a survival mechanism. Um, Because attachment is all about how people bond in intimate relationships. And we bond with people for survival because we have a higher chance of surviving if other people care about us, right? Um, so it's very primal. And and to me, that's a really liberating thought because it can help. It helped me with my process first. And I know it helps a lot of my clients 
with self-forgiveness and self-compassion. And as trite as that answer may seem, it's a huge piece, you know? But yeah, like you said it, when you're young and you're so unaware of all these things and maybe you haven't even heard the term self-worth before, you know? Or you've heard the term, but you have no immediate, like tangible or visceral understanding of what that feels like. Um, it's hard to wrap your your brain around, you know, and it's even harder to integrate it into your life. Um, and so that's my goal for you is to get you on that path to understanding where these feelings and patterns and relationships have come from in the past. And then with that knowledge, you start slowly integrating it. And like I've told you before, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And even for people who have been doing it for years, like some of my clients and myself, you still can get triggered and you can still be affected. And another thing that I think is key to note is that when we're doing self-work, there's a lot of focus on being our highest selves and, you know, addressing our shadows and really getting to know those patterns within ourselves that have kept us from our greatest happiness, whatever that may be, right? In this context, it's relationships, right? And it's, and it's confidence in ourselves, you know? Um, and again, attachment is great for that because it is a form of shadow work. It helps us see things that we didn't previously see. Um, shadow work being you know, the work of shedding light on things that we are ashamed of or don't want others to see or don't want to see ourselves, right? So that's the work here is we're shedding light on that. And, you know, a lot of people tell me I've done this work. I've been doing the work on myself. I feel so confident on my own. And yet then I step into this kind of relationship and all of that goes out the window, it feels like. And suddenly I'm this insecure mess again, you know? And what's wrong with me that I can't feel confident? I know it's in there, you know? That's a lot of what I heard you saying earlier. And I really relate to that on a very deep level. Um, and that's the experience I think of a lot of people doing this work. And what I always explain to people is that the self-work is preparation for when you're in a relationship so that you have those tools behind you and that you know yourself as much as you possibly can. Right. But the reality is, is that relationships are by nature, obviously relational, mm -hmm. meaning it takes two of those people to create a happy, secure relationship. And it's not all on you to do that. Right. right. And even though we might know that like cognitively that, yeah, duh, like the other person has to be involved in the process when we have an anxious attachment style, especially, or maybe fearful avoidant, because they're a mix of both. There's a tendency to self-blame. And so we put this other person in the, on the pedestal or we're sensitive to their criticisms. And because anxious people tend to attract avoidant people and vice versa, it's like this repetitiveness of someone telling you you're wrong and you being quick to self-blame you know, and so you can see how quickly your confidence is going to go down when right. you start getting intimate with someone. And so that's where when we understand how attachment works, we can bring our awareness of these things to it and say, okay, I'm actually being triggered right now because that's truly probably where it starts. And a big tendency is for anxiously attached people to feel good in the beginning when they're first being courted 
But as soon as they, or I should say, as soon as we realize that we have feelings for someone and tell me if this has been your experience, as soon as we realize we have feelings for someone, that's when we get nervous, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, Because that's when we start to get triggered because we realize there's something on the line and all of the old stuff from whether it's, you know, familial or old friendships of intimacy where we haven't felt fully seen and heard or fully safe to be our full, vulnerable, authentic selves. It's like this trigger and this worry. And then it's this really frustrating, self-fulfilling prophecy where you start down that path of overanalyzing everything you do and not knowing what's right and what's wrong. And like you were saying, where are my boundaries? Where It's like it becomes this like dark cloud and it can be very hard to get out of. And the hardest thing is that if there's shame around it, like you're talking about, like you had, our last impulse is to want to share it with the person who's courting us because we don't want to scare them away or make them think that we're insecure or that we're needy, God forbid, you know, or that we like need emotional support, like, you know, because that's just villainized as weakness, you know, and because maybe we had done it in the past and shared ourselves in the past and got criticized or rejected or they ghosted us or whatever the case may be. And so there's this fear of being honest, right? Yes. So... That, I think, is the overall process of what's been happening to you. Um, and so, again, it's it stemmed from you, but it's not all on you. Because to me, the integration of attachment into our lives to build us and, and lead us towards more secure relationships is first that self-work and that shadow work of understanding how we show up in our relationships based on this, how we feel in our relationships based on this. And just us having this conversation is you doing that, you know, already. The second piece is being able to identify people, like you said, not seeing the signs. It's getting very savvy on people who are going to hold space for you to share that stuff and feel vulnerable because ultimately it sounds counterintuitive, but that's actually what builds intimacy and and allows you to have a secure relationship and ultimately to fall in love with someone is those moments of vulnerability and fear that you can share with them and they hear you and receive you and give you what you need. And so if you're not sharing that out of fear, well, of course, you're never going to find it, you know? So that's why the work of understanding it first is helpful before being able to see like, okay, now who's going to support me in this? Um, Do you have any questions about any of that before we go on? No, you're preaching to the choir. (laughs) Uh, Everything you said made so much sense. Um, Dang, I I wish I could could remember there was something you said and and I wanted to add on to it. But um, yeah, that's definitely been my experience. I'll, I'll just let you... Okay. I'm sorry. I know I go on these like long diatribes and then there's, and then you lose thoughts. (laughs) Um, But, but I want, you know, I'm coaching you and I want you, you know, to ask your question. So if, if it does come up again, feel free to interrupt me real quick or be like, you know, we can come back to it um, if you think about it. But um, what I did want to ask you though, and maybe they'll come up in this answer. You mentioned that you in these relationships had been doing what you said were all the right things, or at least what you thought were the right things. And so I'm curious what, 
in your mind, at least at that time, did you think were the quote unquote right things? Yeah. Um, I think, I, I guess the model that we all have for our relationships kind of came from our parents or our, our early caretakers. So in my mind and what I saw growing up was the woman bent over backwards for the man, you know, mm. the, the woman, it, it was sort of like, I think the, the man or the guy in the relationship could make as many mistakes as, as possible. And it was the woman's job to forgive and to be that open, soft space for him to come back to. Um, and then on the flip side, I think anytime I felt that maybe I was in the wrong or, or even my partner might've communicated to me that, you know, I was in the wrong, it was vilified, I think a little bit more than his actions. Right. So Mm-hmm. that's just what I grew up seeing. So that's just what I thought relationships were, you know, it compromise and, and they take work and you have to forgive your partner. And um, I think having that knowledge or like seeing those things without truly knowing what they, what they mean led to confusion because then I started giving free passes and excuses to abusive behavior, things mm-hmm. that, had I known better, <laughs> had I known better, I wouldn't have allowed. You know, retrospect is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. So we can only see things clearly, unfortunately, sometimes when we're past it. Um, that's why I'm here today. <laughs> um, I see things much more clearly than I used to. Um, and again, that goes back to the self-forgiveness. And, you know, that all makes a lot of sense too, just in terms of like thinking, you know, that's where I think the the gender roles and the social roles really fuck us up. Yeah. Uh, this idea that men have a pass to make mistakes as many times as possible. And it's up to us to be that forgiving place, even when we're being abused. Right. Like what kind of messaging is that, you know? And I, I think a lot of women of older generations were taught that. And truly secure relationships are about both person's needs equally being acknowledged and expressed. And, and it's interesting to me that you use the word compromise in the same sentence that you said they could make all the mistakes and you had to forgive and you were vilified if you kind of made a mistake or something like that. Because it sounds to me like you are probably the only person compromising or at least most of the time so is that really compromise if the other person's not involved in the process you know um what it sounds to me like is that it was you just not having any boundaries really like and I know you mentioned that's a thing and and that's a lot of the messaging we get too I think is for women to not have boundaries to just give yourself over to the man to make it work at all costs because again romantic love is the ideal and who are we without it and if we don't you know totally give ourselves to them, then we're not supportive. We're not the supportive woman, you know? And so that's of course going to lead to, you know, an unequal power dynamic Mm -hmm. and it's not going to lead to a partnership. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember when you just mentioned power dynamic, um, because you were talking about how in the beginning and the courting phase, it's all like, roses and cherries and, and everything is sweet and then it's once you realize that you have feelings for this person that's when when things flip and I noticed that in myself as well and specifically for me I have like control freak tendencies mm-hmm. and so to love someone or to have feelings for someone 
gives them a form of power over me. Mm, so mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. that's when I start pulling back and, and wanting to reclaim some of that control and some of that power for myself. And that's mm-hmm. when things start getting sticky. Right, right, right. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And it's a really good way to put it. You are in a way giving your power. And that's what makes it risky. So the point is to, like you said, it's learning to be discerning by understanding other people's attachment patterns and signs to then decide, are they worth risking? Because there is always that little risk when you get to know someone. That's how you build trust is you take these little risks. And if they can catch you, as you leap, then that's a good indication. Okay. Maybe they can catch me again and again and again, you know? So you do have to give your power over to a degree, but the point is to kind of like screen people, if you will. I mean, there's a lot of really strong parallels between like looking for work and dating, you know, like interviewing and dating. And if you think about it in the workspace, people will screen you and get to know you and make sure like what qualities do you have that I think make you a good candidate. And when people hire you, maybe it was after one, two, three, depending on the place, you know, several interviews, but like you don't actually know who someone's going to be until they hire you and you work with them and you interact with them all the time. Right. Right. There's a lot that people do that seem great, but that isn't in the end. Right. And so it's kind of like, I think that a lot of times with romance, our emotions and our hormones are high. The lust is high. There's a lot of primal attraction stuff going on. Anxious types tend to attach more quickly anyway, even just by hearing someone's voice or hugging them. Even if you haven't had sex yet, we attach very quickly. And so all of those things, I think, make the screening process shorter so that the risk factor is higher when we go to trust them, right? So it's really important that we screen them thoroughly and slowly, which can be difficult um, for a whole host of reasons or challenging. I would say it can be challenging, you know, but that's the idea is that you make the best possible choice off of the information you're given. And I know that's harder to do when we start getting that fear, you know, about it. So it's really breaking it down into small pieces. And in general, this is how anxiety works. Anxiety you know, because a lot of times people who have anxious attachments have certain levels of anxiety. I don't know if, can you relate to that just in general? Do you oh, yes. feel? Yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. We're just, we tend to be more anxious people in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, we take a lot of things personally. We, we overthink things, mm-hmm. you know, and so you know what it feels like to get caught up in that anxious spiral in your head yes. where you're like floating in space and you're like not grounded. And, mm-hmm. and so it's really hard to make like you said, discerning decisions and, and approach things with clarity when we don't feel grounded and when we're in that space. And so it can be a very overwhelming experience. And the thing about anxiety is that it's fear of the future. It's fear of what might happen. Or even if we're ruminating on something we did in the past, what's making us anxious is what might happen in the future because of it, right? Right. Like I said, this thing that maybe I shouldn't have said, are they going to stop seeing me? You know? Um, Yeah. And especially anxious types, like that's our fear is the fear of the abandonment, the rejection, the abandonment. So it's really about, even with any kind of anxiety, breaking it down into bite-sized pieces that feel more manageable. And I think, or I know rather, that trust works the same way. And Brene Brown has this awesome YouTube video on 
The Anatomy of Trust. It's about 20 minutes. I highly recommend you look that up after this call um, if you have time. And she talks about, she has an acronym for trust. I think it's called like braving trust or something. And so kind of shows you how trust has a lot of different factors because there's, you know, different types of trust, like, like we were talking about earlier, trusting others, you know, with a secret. I think she calls that the vault. Um, And then there's trusting someone that they'll show up and follow through. That's a different type of trust. But her whole lead in to that talk, she first talks about how her nine-year-old came home from school one day and she had told a couple of friends in her class a secret and they told the whole class. And her teacher had a marble jar in class. And this marble jar basically was filled like they put a marble in the marble jar whenever the class seemed to be working together and getting along. And if the class was not working together and getting along, they didn't add a marble. And Brene Brown talks about how trust is the marble jar. So every time you take that little leap with someone to trust them with your opinion or a feeling that you're not sure how they're going to respond to or whatever the case may be that you're trusting them with, if they pass the test, if you will, or if they catch you when you take that leap you add a marble to the marble jar and you're you're trusting them with all these little marbles as time goes along so that means if they say they're going to call you and they call you okay they get a marble in the marble jar you know if they follow through if they show up on the date if they you know whatever it is each of those little things warrant a marble and when the marble jar starts to get full that's when you know okay this is a trustworthy person i've screened them enough I've gotten to know them enough to know that I can trust them with something bigger, like this fear of mine or this vulnerability of mine, you know? So it's very like slow and methodical. Mm -hmm. And in general, that's how building intimacy works. That's actually part of how we form our attachment styles to begin with is how consistently available our primary caregivers were and or other significant relationships when we were younger. So anxious attachment comes from having generally one person who was consistent and, and acknowledged our feelings and was emotionally available and having someone else, a primary caregiver or whatnot, who was inconsistent emotionally. So sometimes they'd be there and present and acknowledge you, but you didn't always know how they were going to react or when they would withdraw or ignore you or whatever. And so you were, were always waiting for that other parent or caregiver, whoever, to change their mind or their mood or whatever. And so we try to anticipate their needs and we look for validation from them. And so you can understand all these things where it starts to come from, like you see this picture start to emerge of, oh, so this is why I respond to people this way. And that's why trust and consistency go so hand in hand is I start to trust when I can know that you're consistently this way, because especially as someone who's afraid of abandonment or rejection, I need to get that reassurance Mm -hmm. that you're going to be there. And the more consistent you are with me, the more reassured I will feel. And that will settle your nervous system into feeling more secure and calm. And so ultimately reassurance from other people is actually the key. And the thing that's scary is like I was saying before, a lot of the times we're too afraid to ask for that reassurance because it makes us look vulnerable. So it's finding a way to communicate in the best way possible for the situation that you need that reassurance. And that can be in like a lot of different forms. So 
for instance, I'm pretty secure in my relationship with my husband and I'm pretty secure in relationships with my closest friends, but I actually get triggered these days. Like if I'm a client or if I'm interacting professionally and people are like not responsive or being vague with me, I start getting triggered that like I'm being difficult or, you know, that's a big trigger for me that I'm being difficult because I can be very exacting. And a lot of times people are just like, don't have the patience or whatever the case. And so I get sensitive to that. And so like a way that I work around that people who are often unresponsive, I'll say, can you please confirm receipt of this email? And so that's like just a small example of how I know that what I need in those situations is recognition and acknowledgement. I received your email because if I email you and then I go four days and don't hear from you. It drives me crazy. So the way that I am able to work around that is like, okay, this is my need in the situation. I need to feel acknowledged. And so to get that, I can say something as simple as, can you please confirm receipt of this email? And more often it works because they say, yep, got it. We'll get back to you soon. And I'm like, great. And then it, it uses that nervous system. I got the reassurance and I can chill out, right? Now, asking for that in a dating situation is a little trickier, right? Because of those fears of being needy or what have you. But that is exactly the kind of little risk I'm talking about that we're evaluating them. Can they meet my need right now? Because if they can't meet my need right now and think I'm needy for asking like, hey, can you give me a time that you want to hang out this weekend? Mm -hmm. Something that's reasonable and fair and they can't get back to you about that. That says more about them than you, right? So it's this very slow process of figuring out what you need in certain situations and finding ways to communicate them in these little ways that starts building that confidence or making you realize, wait a minute, this isn't the person who's going to be good for me. And so it's learning to put your needs first and validate yourself that if this is how I'm feeling, it's valid. Okay, I'm interrupting this conversation real quick to let you know that if you're intrigued by what you're hearing in this episode, if light bulbs are just going off in your head as I coach our guest, I want to invite you to have your own clarity call with me, where we'll do the exact same thing I'm doing here with my guest. We'll spend 45 minutes helping you get clear on the greatest pain points in your love life and how you can start working with your attachment style to make choices that are high self-worth and will lead you to more secure and lasting relationships. Now this call is completely free, aka there is no charge. It is complimentary 45 minutes of just us talking about whatever it is that you want to talk about. All you have to do is book the call. To do that, hop on over to my website at truerlove.com and hit the love guidance tab where you'll be prompted to book your free clarity call and feel free to email me with any questions at hello at truerlove.com or DM me on Instagram at underscore truerlove underscore. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. Is all of this tracking for you? Yeah, yeah that all makes sense. Um, and because I think, I think maybe either the way that we're conditioned societally or, or the way that we're programmed, it feels almost wrong or like you're saying, like weak a little bit and need mm-hmm. in order to ask for that. Like even though I can know that I need it in the moment, 
it's that fear like you're talking about that you don't want to express that because then I'm going to be, you know, the insecure, the needy one. Um, it is really scary to ask for it. And there is this, you're right, societal programming that we are taught to revere people who are strong and, and independent and unemotional, who just get their shit done, you know, like don't make a big deal of things, oftentimes anxiously attached people, someone in their life has told them that they're too sensitive yeah. or something like that. And said is a negative thing, right? Whereas like sensitivity is one of our greatest strengths, but we're taught to make it a shadow and hide it. And the truth is humans need to depend on each other. Like there's no, there's no society that actually functions without interdependence. And I think this concept of codependence has really made us wary of that. And, you know, historically women's fight for independence, it's like when we broke from these really abusive patriarchal, you know, ways of relating to men in the earlier parts of our culture I think that to break free of that we almost had to kind of um, adopt these masculine traits of independence right? right but women are actually women I've I read an article in Time magazine that women tend to live longer because they know how to talk to each other and express themselves and depend on each other more than men. Men hold a lot of their emotions inside, which in and of itself is toxic for them, right? It's not healthy for men to be holding their emotions in, but they're taught that they shouldn't and that you're not a man if you feel emotional about something. And so, yeah, it's been really vilified. Um, there's a big stigma around feeling needy. But what we want for you is a new kind of man. We want a man who's woke and aware and supports women and thinks that when you express yourself, it's an act of strength because truly, you know, people who are self-aware and secure know that self-expression and vulnerability is the greatest hallmark of strength. And I think that you've gotten a lot of feedback over the years from toxic or maybe very avoidantly attached people who see that as needy because it makes them feel vulnerable when you have that emotion because they don't know how to deal with emotions in the same way. Avoidant people, their struggle is that they were never in a space to feel like sharing emotions was safe. So they value independence above all else. It's actually, they're usually hyper-independent because they learn to self-soothe and process by themselves because they don't trust anyone else with their feelings. And sometimes it's so much that they become numb to their own feelings and hide them, um, which is its own issue, right? And so they don't know how to receive yours. Emotions just in general are very overwhelming for them. So if you show any feeling of emotion where you need reassurance, that's what makes them ghost a lot or, or leave because they can't handle it. Um, even if they want to, you know, there's a lot of well-intentioned, like full-hearted, amazing avoidant types out there who just haven't been taught that vulnerability is safe and they don't know how to manage people's emotions. Whereas we are very gifted in managing people's emotions because that's how we were trained, right? So that's why they like us because we can provide that for them. So when it comes to asking for what you need, the idea is that if you feel validated in your own needs. If you can learn to accept your own needs, no matter how needy or scary or whatever they are, then it will give you a little bit more conviction to ask for things. And again, you ask for small things and start slowly. And that's where you like, you dip your toe in the water to see what's this person's temperature. 
And it's kind of learning to separate my attraction to you and my pull to you mm-hmm. and, and being able to name those things as, as my hormones and as biology, but also separating that and sticking. That's why I do a lot of intuition work with people to be able to, like you said, be discerning. A lot of that is being in touch with my own intuition and what my needs are. And that when we're triggered, actually, mm-hmm. our triggers are, to me, our intuition speaking a lot. Because they're saying, I don't feel safe right now. I'm triggered. I'm feeling anxious because there's some kind of information or something I don't have. I'm not feeling safe and reassured. And that's telling you I need this. So I go deeper with clients into like what that kind of communication looks like and how to do it. But just knowing that it's, you know, it's intimidating at first and it's not always easy to find the words, but that's kind of like the general process. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Okay, amazing. Um, And then another thing I was going to say about trust um, and going back to this idea of consistency, right? And confidence, essentially, because I actually learned this just a few years ago and it blew my mind. And it, it seems really basic when I think about it now, like, duh, but confidence is actually a form of trust. You know, when we say we're confident, What that means is that we trust ourselves. It means that we trust ourselves to protect ourselves, to be discerning, to follow through on things for ourselves, right? We're confident that we can do something because we trust ourselves. And that's where it gets really muddy in relationships because if we're not trusting ourselves to discern what's good for us, we stop feeling confident. And we don't want the other person to think we're not confident, right? But it's not really that the confidence in yourself, because like we talked about out in the world, you might be totally confident and know who you are, but it's having the trust in that situation that you'll speak up for yourself, you know, or that you're going to honor your own needs. And because that hadn't happened in the past, you don't have any proof of that. There's no consistency from yourself to help you trust yourself in that way. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. Makes yeah. Sense. And so the way that you kind of approach your own confidence and building your own confidence and establishing that trust with yourself is the exact same way we talked about earlier about doing it with other people, which is figuring out your needs, listening to your intuition and learning to create those boundaries and standards for yourself about the things that you are going to put up with and the things that you're not. And by honoring those needs and those boundaries, you will start to create that trust and that confidence with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I love the, the analogy or the metaphor you were using earlier from Brene about the marbles, putting the marbles in and relating that to the screening process and and yeah, yeah, doing that with, with the self and others. I, I love that. Good, good. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, I think the work for you right now, especially since you've very intentionally taken kind of this hiatus from dating, yeah. I think it's um, reestablishing self trust and like creating your own little marble jar for yourself and, and in relation to other people. So meaning, you know, like we were talking about, We might have confidence and we might trust ourselves in and of ourselves, right? When we think about ourselves, when we know how we feel about ourselves, but then other people come in the mix and we start to lose that, right? Because they affect 
how we feel. So I would start with relationships that are less risky, like in little ways with friends or family members or people where you just start to notice, like, if I feel you, when you feel like even a teensy bit triggered, like, oh, that little shock of discomfort, like, oh, I don't like what they said to me just now. Or I'm not comfortable with the way I'm kind of allowing this behavior in this situation or what they're asking of me feels like I'm giving away my power somehow. And it can start to be a little funky with people you're in relationships with because dynamics kind of can change a little. But the idea is that you're starting with people you already trust to a degree. So the risk level is less, right? Because these are relationships where you know you can make a mistake and not be fully demonized, or you know that they're not actually going to stop talking to you just because you're asserting yourself a little, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like starting to build that muscle of creating those boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know? I actually feel like I recall you saying, maybe not this call, but our pre-call, like that it's hard for you to know where there's a boundary. Yes. Right. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, I think aside from romance, I think the idea of boundaries themselves are like, they're not foreign. <laughs> they're not foreign, but they're, they're definitely something that I had to learn about that they were even a yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, boundaries in romance, it's knowing what's okay, what's not okay, as, and also how to not just have boundaries, but assert them and to stick to them, to like uphold them, you know, Mm -hmm. because if I can, you know, write my, my list of, you know, things that I want to dream partner, or, you know, these are the things that I'm no longer accepting in a, in a romantic sense or, or anything. Mm -hmm. And then I get in the situation, then it's up to me to actually stick to those things that I can. Right. 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 Yeah. And not allow, like you were saying, the chemistry of it or the hormones to, you know, to distract me and take my mind away from, the point, which is to find a relationship where I'm respected and, you know, an equal and, and whole. Um, but yeah. yeah. Um, and then, and then also with boundaries, it's sometimes I think when you did grow up with um, some anxious tendencies, it's, and I get in my head a little bit about, am I just being like a nitpick right now? Am I just being, you know, difficult to, to deal with, you know, am I mm-hmm. being, um, you know, is it because because sometimes it can also I think sometimes we can confuse like the ego, the ego wanting to be important with us actually setting boundaries. So it's yes. more so about deciphering between what is truly something that's coming from a place of need. And this is what this is a boundary that I need to set and enforce versus this is just something that I want because of my conditioning and because I, you know, I thought that my, my ego thought rather that I needed this in order to feel important in, in this situation. So it's sort of just not drawing the line between, but just um, discerning between what is healthy, like what's a healthy boundary and where I'm putting up a wall that's just not really necessary. Where am I rejecting someone just because like out of fear that they're going to reject me too. Right. So it's right, what, right. What it, so what is a genuine need? And then what is just, coming from a place of fear. Totally. That's a great question. It's one I think about a lot. Um, And that isn't always the easiest to break down, but I'm going to try. So first of all, you're right. Ego does play a role. And it is sometimes hard to discern what's ego and what's yourself. And I think to me, when I think about ego, it's related to 
what this other person's going to think of me, mm-hmm. like what it says about me mm-hmm. to other people if I act this way or feel this way. That's where the judgment comes in of am I being too this, too needy, too sensitive, right. you know? Um, and so I think that is actually what keeps us from bringing things up, right, is the ego, more so than the ego being the reason for the feeling. I think the feeling itself, if it, um, even, and even if the feeling does come a little bit from your own ego, to me, that's less important because ego is going to be there. Like, like I think feelings themselves are more pure than that. And it might be from our conditioning that we get this feeling that they're going to leave me. And that, what does that say about me? You know, again, what does that say that they think this, you know? But the fact is, is that because anxiously attached people have been programmed to need validation on a certain level and not just validation, but acknowledgement and acknowledgement is a very basic human need to know that we have a feeling that someone else can say, that's okay that you're having that feeling is actually very healthy. And we have this idea that we can't be validated by other people. And to me, there's a difference between validation and acknowledgement. And I think that there's a fine line between them sometimes, but validation to me is like, you know, they have this feeling and how they feel about me is what's going to make me feel about myself, right? Right. Versus acknowledgement is I'm having this feeling and I want you to tell me that you see it and understand it, but I still agree with myself that this is how I feel and how you feel is not going to influence or decide how I feel about myself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's the, it's the part about when you just said seeing um, something about that, like it just triggers something in my head because that's what I have been noticing that I have been lacking in previous relationships and what I want to, to cultivate in the future is the feeling of being seen and being heard. And I feel in my past relationships, I, I felt, I felt a little bit, um, objectified you know I told you I I Mm -hmm. think I did mention this before where yeah you know um like like I'm a sex doll or or something like that you know it's like those yeah if you if I'm being objectified then I don't have the right to feel a certain way and I don't have the right to to voice something or for it to be um seen heard acknowledged and and right have things reciprocated so yeah the, the seeing part stuck out that's big for me yeah, yeah. And and I want to keep going with the um the discerning of intuition and speaking up and I think mm-hmm. this is a little related, but I also want to acknowledge what you just said in terms of the objectification and I think that's a very real thing. And again, that goes back to this toxic patriarchy that has trained our men in a lot of different ways whether it's how they're supposed to date, porn, you know, their entitlement, whatever the case may be. And that part's not on you, right? Like, mm-hmm. like we can bring that up for conversation in the general discussion, but we need good men who are willing to come to the table and acknowledge those things mm-hmm. and make changes for that not to be a reality, right? right? So on a certain level, that also comes back to like the being able to discern and identify who are secure people and who who are going to not exhibit those kinds of qualities of just talking about sex really early and making it all about your physical body and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But the piece for you, I think is that by getting more practice and building that muscle of sharing your opinion and speaking up, I think that's how you're going to start to get your 
opinions and your feelings and your needs out there more because that's truly the only way that you'll be seen, right? And I think that in the past, if you were feeling objectified, you were also functioning from that place of, I want to please you. Mm -hmm. So you also weren't establishing and show, you weren't showing who you are, right? Like there's a lot of hiding in that dynamic because there's fear of showing who we are because I want you to like me. So I kind of am in a way accepting feeling objectified because it's getting me the validation that you're into me, right? right? Even though it's not the validation you actually want, it's like you are settling for that form of validation, right? In the past. And I think that by asserting yourself more, you're putting yourself out there enough to be seen. And that doesn't mean that these kinds of people are going to see and acknowledge you, mm-hmm. right? Like, but that's okay because that's how you waste your time less and can say, all right, well, if you're not going to see and acknowledge me, I don't need your validation, right? I'm going to, I'm going to move on. I'm good enough to move on. And it, it's weird because worth, like you don't just wake up feeling worthy. I don't think you can have these kinds of discussions with people and you can know on this like cognitive level that you deserve things and that you're worthy. But I think that worth is kind of like trust and confidence. It's each time you put a little marble in of standing up for yourself, of speaking up for yourself, it's like, it becomes this kind of like energetic wave and vibration that you put in the world that I am worthy because I'm, I'm stepping up for myself. And you start to believe you're more worthy the more that you do it, you know, and that I'm worthy enough to not put up with this, you know, feeling of objectification or comments that you're making or the way you're treating me. So I do think that will kind of ease off more that feeling because you're going to start learning how to find people who are less likely to do that now that you have these tools, you know? Yeah. Yeah, So I don't remember where we were, you know, but like, (laughs) yeah. Do you have any questions about any of that? No. Or anything at all. Yeah. No, um, everything you said made perfect sense. Something that I've been, um, or like one of the repeating lessons in my life has been on the topic of worth that knowing that just because I didn't receive something before doesn't mean that I'm not worthy of having it. Right. So it's again, that idea of not making other people's actions mean something about me, you know, not internalizing it. So yeah, when it comes to worth, even, and, and with, um, attachment style and all that with with my parents I had an absent father and so Mm. it's just those ideas that well just because he wasn't in my life doesn't mean that I wasn't worthy of that love you know it doesn't mean that I wasn't worthy of receiving his love and his protection just because I didn't get it as a kid and so it's just been that repeating idea that I've had to remind myself throughout life is um Yeah. yeah in terms of worth that it's not related or shouldn't really be attached to the way that people respond to me or their actions towards me, it's more so about what I accept, what I allow and what I say no to, you know, what I say yes to, what I say no to. Exactly. Like we're all born worthy. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not just like a nice thing I'm saying. Like if you actually think about a baby, right. When we meet babies for the first time, we believe that they are fully worthy of all things, right. Of love and of attention and being taken care of. Like, we are born worthy. It's only these limiting beliefs that we have established through these fears of different relationships and experiences that start to chip away at our sense of worth that is inherent, 
you know, so it's, it's there all the time, but that doesn't mean that it's definitive or like, I don't, I guess definitive is a fine word, but like, it's not, it's not, um, static, right? Right. Worth is not static. And, and I think that the way it's talked about a lot of the time, it sounds like this thing that you just have, or you don't have, you know, and how can I get it? Um, but it's actually a verb in my mind. It's not a noun, it's a verb. And it's something that you establish and create through these actions that we take to stand up for ourselves and assert those boundaries. Right. And ah, that's what we wanted to go back to was this idea of boundaries versus ego and, and discerning like what's a proper boundary to set. And so it really is as basic to me as what we were talking about with triggers. If you feel uncomfortable with something that means that either it needs to be discussed or a boundary needs to be set. And I think you said something about boundaries being like, um, you're afraid to kind of put up this wall and just reject someone, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. am I, because I'm being too X, Y, and Z, too sensitive right. to whatever. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, even though they sound harsh, they're really more about creating structure. Mm-hmm. Like it's not so much a gate to keep the person out, so much as like any form, right? Like if you think about a vase, right? A vase couldn't hold water and flowers if it didn't have the boundaries of the structure of itself around it, right? Boundaries are really just containers. And so they are what kind of create clarity around our feelings and emotions in relation to other people so that you can say, this is where I begin and end, and this is where you begin and end. And I'm going to respect where you begin and end and vice versa, because that's what's going to establish healthy intimacy, because we are not the same person, even though we're infusing ourselves with each other in a lot of these ways, that's where enmeshment begins, right? When we stop seeing where I begin and you end, but true relationships are, or rather healthy relationships acknowledge the boundaries in a respectful way, in a way that's like, I'm honoring that this is who you are and that this is where you begin and this is where you end. And, and that's beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. And someone who loves you is going to respect you more for saying, and again, it's kind of like stepping into yourself. That's Mm -hmm. the act of stepping into, this is who I am and this is how I feel. And it's, it's not against you. And And a big thing, I think we project a lot on people how we would feel in certain situations, right? And insecure attachment types, by and large, are very sensitive, right? So we take things personally. We take a lot personally. The way that someone acts or feels or responds to us, we think is a reflection about ourselves, which is kind of what we talked about before with that validation piece, right? Like we let how they feel determine how we feel. And so we take it to heart and we hold it there. That's where the self-blame starts to come in because we start to decide what does this mean about us that they're treating us this way, right? Mm -hmm. But the truth of it is that most situations are less a reflection of you and more a reflection of their own attachment stuff and their own ways of dealing with things. And it's a hard thing to kind of reconcile when you're in an intimate relationship because that's the most personal you can get. And because we're taught that we want to feel special. I mean, we do want to feel special. We're not just taught it, right? Like that acknowledgement, that's an inherent thing. We want to feel seen, but also we want to feel special. We want to feel like 
I'm more important to you. I'm a priority to you. You see me as unique. You see me as amazing, you know? And so it is so personal in that way, right? But the truth is, is that everyone has this attachment stuff functioning in them all the time with every relationship. And the way people react to you, like you might be triggering something in them Mm -hmm. that they're reacting to, but their response or their reaction is really more a reflection of their own capacity to handle what you're saying and less of a reflection of who you are and what you're doing. Now, that doesn't mean it relieves us of all responsibility in a relationship. Of course not, you know, but our responsibility is to show up as honestly and fairly and lovingly and willingly as we feel comfortable with and as we determine is right for us. Right. Right. And that's where the boundary piece comes in. It's like, I'm like, you are someone who like, I'm happy to compromise, but where are those moments where it's not compromising? It's just me giving my power away. And you will know because you will feel it as you have in the past, Mm -hmm. right? And so if they can receive that or not is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is just to know it and communicate it as best you can. And the right person for you is going to understand you and be able to receive it in a way that it will give you permission to share it and it will give them permission to then respond in honesty. And that's where the intimacy and the love and the trust all starts to be established, you know? Um, so just know that like, it's, it's not as personal as it feels. And if you can remind yourself of that, this isn't personal to me, this is them. Mm -hmm. I find that like to be a very self-soothing thing. Mm -hmm. And that's really what a lot of anxious attachments need. In addition to having people who are willing to reassure them and not judge them and hold that space. It's this kind of balance between that and also like we were talking about that self-work of learning to reassure ourselves and stand in our own trust of ourselves and our own worth, you know, that I am worthy enough to share this feeling right now. My feeling is valid. Even if they disagree with it, you know, I feel it. And if I feel it, that means it's true. Whether or not that makes me needy or all those other judgments is irrelevant because that's according to who, Mm -hmm. you know, to who thinks I'm being needy, you know? Um, And yeah, you want to be honest and that's Mm -hmm. the key. Yeah. Something that I I remember a lot or that I remind myself of is that people can only meet you as far as they've met themselves. Yes. Right. And so it's that idea that you're talking about where I can express something and it doesn't really matter how they receive it or how they respond to it or, or react to it. Because in the past, my, my toxic behavior tendency had been to take someone else like something that may be an inside job, like their attachment style, like what they're dealing with and what they're working with, which is a complete inside job and something that they have to deal with. I would take that responsibility on to myself. Like I mm-hmm. have to mm-hmm. fix it or, you know, fix, right. fix them, make it better or something like that. And that is no longer, that is no longer my ball game. And so I think when it comes to discernment, what I've started to notice with the people that I'm more attracted to now is that they have that awareness of themselves and they have that willingness to want to work on themselves and to want to enter into a a co-committed relationship Mm -hmm. rather than project whatever it is that they have onto me. And so um, I guess that's also kind of related to the idea of boundaries where it's like, I realize that you're having this problem, but it's sort of, that's yours to deal with. And this is mine to deal with. Like we can share and, and, you know, we can express our, um, 
are triggers to each other. Like you're saying, like be vulnerable and share those fears and those triggers. Um, and at the same time, recognizing that it's still my responsibility, individual responsibility to deal with my stuff and your responsibility to deal with mm-hmm. your stuff mm-hmm. instead of yeah that enmeshment and taking it on. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's like there's a difference between fixing someone mm-hmm. and supporting someone. Right. right. Right? Like fixing someone means that I'm taking more of an active role in what's your responsibility than you are. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. But supporting someone is letting them work towards making themselves better and letting them know I'm here to help you in the ways that you need, but I can't do the work for you. Right. And that can also be a fine line, but it's kind of like, you know, a Venn diagram. Are you familiar with like the two circles that come together? I I use this analogy a lot because it's so basic, but so true. We still have to have our sides of the circle to be healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. But then there's this sliver of space where we meet in the middle and where we live our daily lives together and we are going to be dependent on each other to a certain degree in that space. Right. Mm -hmm as is natural and healthy for humans who are close. Um, But we're not losing sight of our own needs, our own feelings, our own thoughts and opinions, our own responsibilities to ourselves, right? And the best relationships are synergistic in this way. They work together to support each other, to make the other person feel more full, more their truly authentic selves. And so if someone's responding to a basic request or need of yours, and it's in a negative way or a way that makes you feel worse after the conversation instead of better, that's a key. Like maybe this person's not for me because they're not letting my authenticity exist right now. And so there's no way we can have this co-creative kind of healthy, supportive relationship if they're not even going to see me in this really small way. And that's when you know it's time to move on. And that's an okay boundary to set you know, especially if they do it more than once, like it's okay to give people a chance or two, but repetitive behavior is not going to change. And so it can be hard to walk away, but that again is how you're going to start building that trust and confidence with yourself and that worth of being able to say no to situations that you know are not right for you. And we know that things are not right for us when they are repeatedly coming up for us when, you know, it's like this woman, Caroline missed She's an author and a speaker, and she talked a lot about archetypes. And she um, says that intuition is like this nagging sensation, like a to-do list, like, I got to do that. It's like, you're not even thinking about it, but like, you can feel it in this like really deep way of like, Mm -hmm. it just keeps bothering you or it's keeping you up at night, you know? And I know so many women who say that they intuitively knew someone wasn't right for them a month in, but then they forgive all these little things and keep thinking it'll get better if I just do this or if, you know, we work on this. And it's like, no, someone shows you who they are. And that's, that was a hard lesson for me to learn, especially when we think in our head that the image of who they are is who we've been looking for. Like that image can fuck with us a lot mm-hmm. um, because we're comparing them to our ideal. And that's kind of falling in love with someone's potential, which is a whole other thing. But it's like seeing the reality of who they are you know, and, and trusting that if they have consistently shown me this and it's bothering me, it's time to let them go. And that is a fair boundary to set, mm-hmm. you know? So I just want to give you permission, you know, to do yeah. that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Cool. Um, I feel like we got through a lot, actually. I'm, I'm kind of impressed with us. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> Cause there's a lot to unpack, but yeah. I hopefully it made sense. Know. 
to our listeners. Yeah, we knocked it out. Um, is there anything lingering for you about all this just before we head out? No, I actually I feel really good. I feel validated. Okay. I feel yeah, I feel <laughs> reaffirmed in myself. Like things that I like again, like you say, you can cognitively know, but it's about integration. So yeah, I feel really good about where I'm at right now and, and where the conversation went. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. And you are so wise and intuitive, I can tell. And the fact that you want to do this work, you know, like you deserve so much. And I see in your future, my my psychic visions are of you finding someone amazing. And I hope you don't settle for less than that. And if I can support you along that journey in any way, please don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much for listening to the Truer Love Stories podcast. If you'd like to book your free clarity call with me, head on over to my website at truerlove.com and click on the Love Guidance tab. You can also ask me any coaching-related questions via email at hello at truerlove.com or on Instagram at underscore truerlove underscore. And if you're learning a lot from our guests' stories, it would mean so much if you would rate and review Truer Love Stories on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, stay true to yourself and talk to you soon.